Good morning. It's good to see all of you again. It's good to see the room nearly full and to see many of you who to me are new faces. It's so good to see the Lord bringing new people into this local body of the Lord Jesus Christ, Providence Reformed Church in Bakersfield. We're going to deviate today from what has been a series that I've been carrying out in the Psalter, the Psalms. I've sort of put that on hold. I've been busy with some other things. It's been quite a time, actually. I've been grading final exams. I've been reading a Doctor of Ministry dissertation of a student I'm supervising, and I'm trying to perfect uh, presbytery minutes in the aftermath of our very lengthy meeting this past Tuesday in Los Angeles. So I've been a bit swamped. And in such seasons, I often find myself migrating away from what can so often, even in a sermon series, seem to be an academic endeavor, and find my heart and mind wandering to special places of Scripture that have a certain, if you will excuse the phrase, devotional value to me. And that led me in this previous week back to 1 Timothy, the first chapter. We're going to look at verses 12 through 17. I love the pastoral epistles for a variety of reasons. I think they are, obviously, Paul at his most pastoral. Maybe that's because it's later in life. He's wiser, maybe gentler. But these are particularly special, the last three letters that we find of Paul's writings in his life to to Timothy and one to Titus, because these young men, his mentees, if you will, were very special to him. They were like sons. And his life is almost over. And he's writing to them to specifically prepare them for an increased pastoral load. Timothy, as you know, had a Jewish mother and a Greek father. He had been converted as a teenager as Paul was preaching in his hometown of Lystra. And he had followed Paul around. He'd been on his second missionary journey with him. He had done various things in the way of service. And at the time of the writing of this first epistle to Timothy, he is most likely preparing to go to Ephesus to serve in a pastoral capacity. And Paul wants to encourage him and equip him for that good work. Titus, of course, as you know, was fully Greek and had been converted also under the ministry of Paul and had done ministry with him. And at the time of the writing of the letter to Titus, he is preparing to, to use modern day language, plant a church on the island of Crete where he would eventually become a bishop and would die there, serving there. Now what will strike you as you examine these three letters together is that there are remarkable similarities in content. And I find that very encouraging. Different situations, uh, different circumstances in which these men and under which they will minister, but the essentials are the same. The gospel hasn't changed. The qualifications for leadership are the same. And this is encouraging to me personally because it debunks the modern myth that cultural contextualization can never be taken too far. And it undercuts the notion, in addition to that, that you can change method for message and irrespective of the circumstances, never have problems. We see the timelessness of truth 
And we see how it is that for both men, Paul will approach the spread of his gospel and pastoral ministry essentially the same. And as these men are equipped for the good work to which they are called, those to whom they minister are blessed in every, every way because they experience the truth through ministry and they are sanctified in it. So I hope that we'll be encouraged today as we look at these uh, six verses. Let's now hear God's word. 1 Timothy 1 verses 12 through 17. Paul has greeted Timothy. Uh, he has given uh, some corrective teaching with regard to perspective on the law and warning against false teachers. And then he recounts the Lord's grace to him personally. And he says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word and his truth before all times firmly stood and shall from age to age endure. Let's again look to him in prayer. Father, what a privilege it is to be gathered with one another under your sovereign hand in this place this day, to sing your praises, to speak of your goodness, and to hear from you by your Spirit through your Word. Lord, I ask for your anointing and aid in the coming moments. I ask that you would give me your words, and that you would write these words of yours upon the hearts of your people, that we all may go forth ready to do Your will and to serve You, knowing that You have worked in us that which pleases You best. And we ask it all in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. What I really want to do today is to isolate the root of soul transformation. I want to get at the specific means whereby sinful man is made right with God, according to Paul and his testimony here under the inspiration of the Spirit, in the context of a broader equation. If you think back to your algebra days, and math and I, upper math and I, fell out long ago, about the 10th grade, and we never reconciled. But one of the things that I remember is that if you had an equation that you were going to, to solve for the variable, and one of the sides of the equation had a square root, uh, you had to isolate the square root to, to find out what X or Y would be in the, in the solution. If you've studied the ancient languages, I remember in seminary in Greek, sometimes conjugating a verb in, in a rare a mood or tense or person, the thing would be so long and it would have all of these rarely used Greek letters on the ending that you couldn't recognize the root verb when you just looked at it. You had to deconstruct the thing. 
That's what we have to do here. Sometimes we get lost in the details of things and we lose sight of the principal message, as the Romans would have said in the Latin, the uh, regum tetigiste. We can't touch the thing with a needle. But that's what I want to do here, particularly with verse 15, in the context of the equation of the entire passage that I just read that is no less true than the particular root that we're going to be looking at. Look at this language in verse 15. Here is a trustworthy saying. This is the first of five times that this phrase is used in the pastoral epistles, and you won't find it anywhere else in the New Testament. Now again, this is most likely because it is later in Paul's life. It's roughly 30 to 35 years after the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. There's an intensity and an increased sense of conflict in the culture between Christianity and contrasting world and life views. And that has brought about a tension, not unlike the one we face in our day, where the evil around us is so so palpable. And therefore, in that day, studies have shown, there were likely expressions of competing worldviews that came in short statements, what we might call slogans or, or mottos, or in our day we might have them on bumper stickers. I, I used to think that modern Westerners were the only ones that wanted things in sound bites, but apparently the constituent nature of man is such that even back in the midst of the first century in the Roman world, he, he liked clips of things. Don't get too long, just give me the gist of it. And Paul knows that Timothy and Titus are going to be dealing with this in their respective places of ministry. They're going to hear them, and and they're going to be worrisome, and they're going to fail to deliver. We hear them in our day. Your best life now. You can do it. We've got this. We're, We're just awash in these little declarative statements that those who make them claim are designed to infuse meaning into our lives. And what Paul is saying in the utilization of this particular phrase is it's a kind of wisdom statement that he's counteracting that with. And he's saying to his sons in the faith, look, when you hear those, they don't last, but here is one that does. Pistos hologos, faithful word, word of faith. It is impossible for these words to let you down. They won't cheat on you. They are never faithless. Now, I didn't realize until I was studying in preparation for this sermon this week that when you look at all five of the sayings, uh, three here in First Timothy, one in Second Timothy, and the fifth one in Titus 3.8, uh, that they're all remarkably connected in their content. They, they hang together. Each one builds on the previous one. I'll show you what I mean. Here we have in verse 15, uh, the isolated trustworthy saying is Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the basic gospel. Then you go over to chapter 3, verse 1. What does he say? Here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. You see what he's doing here? He's building on the basic gospel. Now, many have misinterpreted this and have isolated the aspiration 
or the desire or even the quest for the office of overseer as what is noble or excellent. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying if a man desires this, what he desires, the office of service as an overseer, that is an excellent thing. So think about that. Jesus has come into the world to save sinners, but he's also appointed godly men, has called for the appointment of qualified men of godly character to oversee those who accept that first saying and to lead them in the truth. And that's remarkably humbling and comforting to think about that as an elder in Christ's church. To think that the service that by His grace we render as leaders in His church that He works through is no less dependable than the very gospel itself and all of its trustworthiness. That's very encouraging because it it assigns to those of us who serve in the eldership, be we teaching or ruling elders, a sense that God is with us and this is part of His plan. And as flawed and sinful as we are, He is with us and He is working His purposes in us and through us for His people's good, for His glory. And then you get to the third one in in verse 9 of of chapter 4 of 1 Timothy. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, and for this we labor and strive that we have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all men and especially of those who believe. Most commentators are agreed that the real substance of the trustworthy saying here come in the preceding verse with which you're quite familiar, 1 Timothy 4.8. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. You see, by uh, spiritual training, that's what some translations say, Paul means godliness or literally the pursuit of holiness. So he's saying there, yes, physical training is good in some ways, but spiritual training, that is pursuing the things of God and longing and moving in a direction wherein you are conformed more and more to the image of Christ, that can't fail in any area of your life, in any aspect of your existence. So we have Salvation in Christ, we have the appointment of overseers to the end of the outworking of that in His people, and then we have a call here, as it were, to pursue holiness through this declarative statement, this indicative reality that the pursuit of spiritual things cannot let you down ever in any way. You'll notice, too, that this is the only other of the five sayings, along with the first one, this third one, that has appended to it the words, deserves full acceptance. Now, in both 1 Timothy 1.15 and 1 Timothy 4.9, uh, uh, this has two aspects to it. It has both the totality of the act of accepting, but also it appraises the very truth that Paul is addressing as something that their value of it is so high that it merits, it deserves, it calls for belief upon by every person everywhere. It's what Dr. William Hendrickson, Hendrickson called the universal personal appropriation. Not all men will believe, but all men should believe. And if they do not, justice will necessarily, per the demands of God's divine justice, be meted out upon them. 
That's the value of it. That's the worth of it. And it would follow then, if the gospel is worth that, then the pursuit of obedience unto the one who has worked to bring salvation would be something that is of that same kind of worth. A friend of mine was showing me this app that you can get on smartphones now that will appraise homes. You drive through a neighborhood and you can stop in front of a home and the value of that home will pop up. That's what Paul is talking about here. The value of the gospel and a value and the value of a life lived in light of that same gospel is estimated at the glorious reality that everyone who has ever lived and ever drawn breath preceptively is created and designed to love and to worship and to serve Jesus. So you see how this continues to build. Fourthly, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, we, we can, we're confronted with what we might call a Pauline hymn, similar to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And notice what he does here, verse 11 of 2 Timothy 2. Here is a trustworthy saying, and then he gives us a four, what I'm calling a four-stanzaed song. And the third one's negative. So with this we begin to see that some of the trustworthy, totally reliable sayings entail things that involve curses or a bad result if one does not have union with Jesus. Look what he tells us here. First of all, he directs our attention to the resurrection. Here is a trustworthy saying, if we died with Him, we will also live with Him. Amen. Trustworthy saying. You can bank on it. 100%. Take it home. If we endure, secondly, we will also reign with Him. That brings with it a reminder of the contents of Revelation 3.21. Jesus says to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. How comforting that is for the believer. Thirdly, if we disown him, he will disown us. That's Matthew 10.33. Whosoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father. Yes, it's a certainty. That's locked in stone. It's an axiomatic, non-negotiable reality and certainty that the one who denies Jesus on that day will be denied before their Creator by Him whom they spurned. It's trustworthy. It's reliable. It will be the case. It will not fail. But then that sobering reality is followed by one of the most beautiful Look what he says there in the 13th verse. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. That brings to mind the contents of Romans 3.3, where Paul asked, Will our lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? And he says, Not at all. Not at all. How comforting. So you trust in Christ. You have those who are given to you to, to lead you in a life of discipleship and following Him, and you pursue spiritual matters knowing that there's no area of life in which that will not accrue to your spiritual benefit and your nourishment and growth and grace. And what do we do as Christians? We sing hymns about these things like we've done already in the service. And we summarize these glorious truths that we hold to by grace through faith. 
See how inclusive, how all-encompassing it becomes for Paul in these trustworthy saying portions of the pastoral epistles. Here are all the things that he can never fail you in. And then finally, the fifth one in Titus chapter 3, verse 8, right toward the end of the epistle. He says, this is a trustworthy saying in verse 8, and it actually entails the contents of it, kind of a systematic rundown of the basics of good biblical theology in verses 4 through 7. He deals with the love of God the Father, or God our Savior, that's a reference to the Father there, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, and the grace of the Lord Jesus is the grounds of justification, and by a confluence of all of these things, Those who believe are made heirs to the hope of eternal life. So there it is in the Pauline prescription. It's not just one thing that you can bank on without a doubt, but it's a series of things. You could extract these five sayings and you would have everything that man needs to know how it is to be right with God and what God's eternal purposes are in Him and how it is that for His glory, He longs and desires to give an eternal hope to those who trust in Him. And one day, that will work itself out in a complete manifestation of all of the good things that Christ's redemptive work that are in store for His own. All of those things that He has purposed to bring to pass. So I thought it was very interesting how this, this is a kind of, of, of network. There, there's a common theme that runs through all of the truths that are attached to the statement, here is a reliable or trustworthy saying. Now that's important because we can use that in our conversations. You can tell someone that you heard a sermon of what this means, and you can begin to develop that, that in the very words of Scripture, there is a guarantee that these things can never fail, and here they are. And you can use these very things that we've cited already as discussion points. But returning to our text today, I want to zero in on the first of the trustworthy sayings, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I want us to observe four things as we do so. As we look at this in the broader context of the passage, I want us to see how it is that there is a personal aspect to this trustworthy saying. There is a personal aspect to it. Obviously, this is objective reality. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But I want to suggest to you, that there is a subjective dimension to this that bolsters the essence of it in all of its veracity by virtue of the one who is writing these very things and claiming them for himself. You notice how Paul's giving thanks, giving to God for having been made his in Christ in verse 12. He's thankful and he's remarking about how he's been giving strength that he was considered faithful and was appointed to his service. That is, God in his sovereignty designated Paul to serve faithfully. And then he recounts who he was. I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man. Some translations say insolent. He was arrogant. He was, he's saying here, a bad dude. 
but He was shown grace. It was poured out, verse 14, on Him abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He was given faith. He was shown love. And so we have to see in this, as we recall, who Paul was. Saul of Tarsus. The evil. His being complicit in the death of Christians. His having been for that. His having been one who worked to stamp out, to do everything he could to stop the budding of that flower that was the young Christian church in the first century. He confessed before Agrippa that he had determined to do many things against the name of Jesus of Nazareth, Acts 26, 9. And what he's saying to Timothy, I believe, is that my son, as you prepare to work continually in pastoral ministry, and as you are confronted with those conflicting perspectives that I mentioned a moment ago, you need to understand this trustworthy, reliable reality of Christ Jesus coming into the world to save sinners will encourage you, and it will do so for two reasons. A, because you need to preach the gospel to yourself daily, but B, as you are giving up on people to whom you are ministering. As you are saying, this person's beyond the pale in all of your frustration to reach those. Just remember, I taught you this and who I am. And if God can save me, He can save anybody. He calls Himself the, the worst of sinners. I like the old translations that say there at the end of verse 15, of whom I am the chief. Because that conveys the idea very accurately. The, the sense there in the Greek is that he is head sinner, that he's top sinner. Not meaning worst in the sense that there were not others whose depravity had not manifest itself in more egregious ways. But when we think of a chief, we think of organization. Chief of police. Someone who's, who's at the top. And what this means is that Paul is recognizing that as Saul of Tarsus there was a systematization to his sin. There was an organization to it. What he's professing here is that the way I sinned before God transformed me on the Damascus Road, no one could have done that exactly the way I did it. And I wonder, can we say that about ourselves? Haven't you ever longed as you're reading, Oh, Paul, how pious. He's the chief of sinners. I wish I could say that about myself, but I, I know I'm, I wasn't as bad as Paul. I didn't hold the cloaks of anyone who was being stoned. And we say that we missed the point. Paul is giving us the opportunity to isolate our own iniquities as those whom no one else could have done like we did them. And you probably know this if you've been walking with Christ for any length of time. I see it in my own depraved heart. I sometimes cannot believe, as much as I'm ashamed to say it, the things that I can think. The things that I can desire. And it's in that honesty that we begin to see that we too are the worst of sinners. I... I, I heard a testimony recently of a man named Randy Spears who spent nearly 30 years in the adult film industry. We just call it what it is, pornography. 
And the Lord had saved him. He'd been raised in the church. He had drifted off. And the Lord convicted him several years ago and and brought him back. And he's made this video about it. And at the end of the video, he's sitting on his bed. And he looks at the camera and he said, If God can save me, He can save anybody. And I long for that glorious reality to penetrate all of our hearts in such a way that we're lost in the Gospel and we can never have an instance to yield to the temptation to think that somehow anyone is beyond God's gracious arm or that there is any other way that we can be reconciled to God. You know, so often we're blessed by the testimonies of those who come from what many of us would identify as the gutter. Uh, prostitution, pornography, drugs, uh, crime. They have joy because many of them never had any outwardly observable self-righteousness to be tempted to lean on again. They never had anything. So they're just glorying in Jesus. And sometimes in the West, those of us who in the providence of God have been blessed to be born into circumstances where there was a great premium placed on what is proper, what is right, not denouncing the importance of those things in any way. But the battle for us is to not erect those things as idols that that get in the way of seeing Jesus and Him alone as the only hope for the sinners that we are. This is the personal aspect of this first trustworthy statement that Paul issues here. But secondly, uh, we see the comprehensive aspect of it. I alluded to this a moment ago in our analysis of 1 Timothy 4 verse 9. It's a trustworthy saying, verse 15, that deserves full acceptance. Paul had leaned on this totally. He had given his all to this and his pursuit of Christ was something that was full, not partial. He even cites it in verse 16. But for that very reason, that is him coming to the end of himself and seeing himself as the chief of sinners, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. John Calvin puts it this way, Paul is here showing that it was profitable for the church that he had been the kind of man he was before he was called to the apostleship. For by giving in Paul a pledge of his grace, Christ had called all sinners to a sure expectation of obtaining forgiveness. There it is again. that No one is is beyond saving. And once that occurs, the mandate is that the hope that one seeks in the Gospel and the holiness that one pursues is something that is not to be half-hearted. It's not something that is to in any way be truncated, but it's to be full-orbed. You, you go for broke. You, you give it all. And again, how deficient we so often are in such a pursuit. This demon... Uh, dissertation that I've been supervising is by a a brother who serves in the Church of the Nazarene. And when I was assigned to him as his supervisor, and I read that he's in the Church of the Nazarene and his topic is over a particular 
uh, method of discipleship that he's developed for churches, I thought, oh boy, this is going to be interesting. PCA fellow, covenant theologian, supervisor, I, I, I saw problems. So I prayed about it, asked the Lord to give me grace and wisdom and, and to open my heart. And I, I must tell you, as I have read this and as I've come to know this man more, even though there are things in his theology that I disagree with, I, I must tell you, it has been remarkably convicting to read about what the Lord has done through him as a Wesleyan, as a Nazarene, who has a, 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 very, a radically different definition of sanctification than I do. And yet, simply to read the facts that are the result of him and the churches he served making efforts to reach people, to share the gospel, to disciple them, to make sure that they have what they need in the church, and that they have the tools necessary for growth, and all of this. And I find myself wondering, as I looked at some of those numbers and some of those things that have happened, why don't I see that in my own denomination? We're so prone, often, to rest upon laurels that we don't have. And we're afraid if we pursue holiness or be about the very difficult work of discipling people and getting down into the mire of their problems with them that uh, we're going to get stuck. We have a fear of that. We just don't want to go there. But I ask myself the question so often, why don't we want to do that? Do we remember Christ's great commission to go and to make disciples of all nations? baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, not some. It seems that year after year after year at the General Assembly, the presbyteries, so many of them report in the churches, in the column for adult conversions, a zero. This past Tuesday was the second Presbytery meeting in a row that we voted to dissolve a church. Why is that? I mean, I don't know. Ultimately, only in the mysteries of God's sovereignty, only He knows that. But as you wrestle with it, you have to ask the question, why? Do we need to be more comprehensive in our pursuit to cause to be used of God for men to see that they need to embrace the Gospel fully. Take Jesus as He is. And to serve Him. And to give Him the kind of praise that Paul offers in verse 17. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and evermore. What do the... What are the works, what are the deeds that comprise such worship in our actions? Not merely those things that we express with our lips. This is the comprehensive aspect of this first trustworthy saying. But then thirdly, we have the principal aspect of the saying. And that would be the saying proper. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 127 times in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as Jesus Christ. 91 of them, He's referred to as Christ Jesus. Again, I think, more toward the end of Paul's life, in his later epistles, you will see him employing Christ Jesus more. It could be, again, that there's an urgency to stress the messianic role of Jesus. 
and therefore he refers to him first initially by his title, Christ, and then Savior, Jesus. In the Greek it actually reads, Christ Jesus came into the world sinners to save. Isn't that beautiful? That The, the, the first thing that's mentioned after, after the, the introductory part of it, Christ Jesus, the identification, the subject, came into the world, the verb, what sinners to save. Sinners are the immediate direct object there. That Jesus came into the world. He left heaven. He not only was physically moved as He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born upon the earth, but He left as the eternal second person of the Godhead perfection where there is no sin and came into a place where there is no dimension not affected by sin. You talk about a a move that most of us wouldn't want to make. You know, we move in our lives and we complain, I don't want to live there, I don't like that neighborhood, didn't like that town, and we moan and groan about how awful it was to have lived somewhere and now we're happier because we're over here. Can you imagine what that would have been like to have left heaven for earth, to have left bliss and glory and come into the world, the worldly to redeem. That's really what that means. To say that that's his primary purpose, and that too needs to be isolated as the main thing. That Jesus is many things, but he is principally the Savior. He is principally, first and foremost, the one who has come to save, to bring salvation, to deliver from death. And he ought to be proclaimed that way. He ought to be remembered that way. It's not that we shouldn't ask, what would Jesus do? In fact, we should ask that. But the principal question is, what did Jesus do? And thank God that Paul here in the construction of this very sentence leaves no room for any other primary aspect of the work of Christ. Christ Jesus came into the world sinners to save. On the afternoon of January 13, 1982, an Air Florida jet took off from National Airport in Washington and the uh, ice sensors were clogged and the plane was not able to ascend and um, just a matter of minutes off the ground because of this lack of ability to ascend the, the plane struck the bridge on 14th street in washington and plummeted into the potomac and 78 people were killed frigid icy afternoon in january of 1982 there were a few survivors Uh, There is an unknown, virtually unknown hero from that afternoon for those survivors. There was a man, I'm told was a native of Mississippi. I don't know his name, but he was in the water and, and he was passing the helicopter rope to others. It would come to him and he would pass it to someone else he saw needed it. It would come back and he would pass it. They got everybody out and they went back to get him. And out of fatigue and hypothermia having set in, he had sunk below the surface of the water and had drowned. And he became, as I said, a relatively unknown hero. 
And I thought about that the other day when I was contemplating this matter of the work of Jesus' primary purpose being able to save sinners. You and I need to know that God loves us that much to be set free from whatever binds us, from whatever holds us back. That on that cross... For an incalculable number of people, for the many for whom He was dying, all who would believe, Jesus, who could have rescued Himself, kept passing the rope. Any life or potential of it that would have come for Him, He passed it off for His own. This... This is for Bruce. This is for Mike. This is for Julie. And you go back at the end to Jesus and you find a dead Jesus. A Jesus with a life drained out of Him. Precisely because His principal purpose was to sacrifice Himself in order that those of us who were drowning in sin might be rescued. Oh, how I long for us to to lay hold of that in its simplicity, but its profundity, and to never have our attention turned to the right or to the left. And all the talk of Jesus and who Jesus was, that we would have the grace to speak. Yes, He is a friend. Yes, He is an enabler. Yes, He is many things. But most of all, He is the Savior of sinners who gave everything that they may live. That's why the 20th century Methodist, Leslie Weatherhead, when seated in the balcony of a theater in London years ago, listening to a rousing rendition of Handel's Messiah, and they came to that chorus at the end that we all love so much, and they were singing the refrain, King of kings and Lord of lords. King of kings and Lord of lords. He turned to his companion and with tears in his eyes said, That's my Savior they're talking about. That's what we have here. That's what our God, by His Spirit, gives us the privilege of seeing this day in the principal, primary aspect of this trustworthy saying of ancient days that Christ Jesus came into the world, sinners to save. Now, finally, I'd like for us to see the characteristic aspect of this and putting it all into place with regard to the broader formula. When you consider who Paul was and what he did and the drastic change that came in his life and how he was a new man, we read in Acts 9 as he was converted while traveling to Damascus for the express purpose of persecuting more Christians there. It's hard to imagine that he did not have an awareness of what he was doing. And we can see that on some level he did. But notice what he says at the end of verse 13. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. We don't often associate unbelief with ignorance. Because we know, again, with the law of God written on the heart of men, that that evil men know what they're doing. They, They do to some degree. 
But what I believe Jesus teaches and what Paul is reiterating here is that in their blindness, they really don't know what they're doing until those blinders are removed, until those deaf ears are unstopped. I've been thinking a lot about this in recent weeks as we've come through Easter and when you consider the the last sayings of Jesus as he was upon the cross, those seven statements that he makes. It's interesting that the, the, the first one, as recorded in Luke twenty three thirty four, is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, or they do not know what they are doing. Now, again, it's not that they didn't know who he was. They knew who he was. It's not that they didn't know his claims. In fact, in context, his claims were the very immediate reason that he was on that cross and was mocked and was hailed as king of the Jews in a a profane and mocking way as they put that superscription above him on the cross. But they really didn't know what it was all for, ultimately. They really didn't know the final purpose of God, that the very one they were nailing to a tree was the one who had submitted himself to go there precisely because the likes of them needed deliverance. And I think that is all part two of recognizing one's own self as the worst of sinners. Remember that hymn by William Newell? We don't hear it much anymore at Calvary. Years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me He died on Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary, knowing not it was for me he died. Not having a clue, but then having the eyes open, having the heart transformed, having the, the soul regenerated, the mind renewed, the heart swayed in the direction of God and divine things. Why is this? It is because the suffering servant prayed to make it so. The first words out of his mouth on the cross were, Father, forgive. Not, I'm thirsty. Not, you will be with me this day in paradise. But Father, forgive! And it's a fulfillment of Isaiah 53.12. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressor. You think about that. Jesus having taught His disciples in the Sermon on the Mount to love their enemies and to pray for those who persecute them. And there He is on the cross that dark day practicing what he had preached. Not only to save men, but that those whom he's saving might be transformed and be able to live as they weren't before. That's what enabled Stephen, as we read later in Acts, to when he was being put to death, was able to say the last words that he spoke on the earth. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And Acts 8, 1 tells us of that one standing by, Saul, who was approving of the death. But he was changed not long after that because of that prayer 
because of the prayer of Jesus, Jesus still is making effectual unto his own those words spoken from the cross centuries ago. Father, forgive. Father, forgive. Well, there's the root cause. There's the thing of your salvation. We have touched it. And it's all of Him, this one who has caused us to see. May He cause others to see. May He pour out His Spirit. And may He draw His own to Himself and sanctify to them in all of their distresses everything that He has decreed for them and conform them to to the image of His Son. Perhaps it's best summed up by Paul in 2 Corinthians 3.18 where he writes, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. May God apply it to our hearts. Amen.